Well, I was glad when they said unto me, come, let us go to the Abundant Life Christian Fellowship down in Palo Alto, Mountain View, Silicon Valley, whatever this is. Uh, grateful to God to be here. Meet me in First John chapter 4, if you will. And uh, as even as I say that, meet me. I picked that up in uh, January of 2002. I was a senior at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I went to a conference in Chicago. And uh, I didn't know who Brian Loritz was, but everybody was excited that Brian Loritz was going to be preaching this conference. I was a young preacher at the time, wrestling with my sense of calling and uh, knowing that God had called me, but not wanting to go work for his people. Um, just to be honest with you, I had the same preachers treated a certain kind of way. And I figured I could work in corporate and be the best support a preacher could have. I'd received um, full fellowship uh, from a church to study at Yale. I was contemplating uh, going to Trinity and, or if I should stay at Illinois. And I went to that conference with one prayer request, Lord, speak to me about what you want me to do with my life. I, I needed to know in a matter of days. And your pastor stood up and he preached three sermons from the book of Daniel. The first one was called Standing in Babylon. It so gripped my heart. I felt like I got converted again. I knew the Lord was calling me to prepare for full-time ministry. He did not know then. It was one of those kind of divine synchronicity moments. He did not know then how prophetically he was speaking into my life. I also owe him some money from that weekend. Um, I, I took those three sermons for about the next five years and preached them all around the United States of America. But the Lord is good. He, he has sent you a preacher and a pastor. Uh, one who, in my opinion, is one of the clearest and most prophetic voices in these yet to be United States of America. Brian is not afraid to say what needs to be said. He has a, a kind of courage, a Christian courage, a holy boldness. And I pray that you guys buckle your seatbelts. Eyes haven't seen. We know where you've been, but eyes haven't seen and ears haven't heard what God has in store for you in this fellowship underneath this leader. And I would covet today your support for him and his lovely bride and their children. What a great privilege. If God does give us pastors according to his heart, which is what the word says, he must have a bigger heart for y'all than he does some of the churches around the country. We celebrate this pastor today and thank God for him. Amen. Amen. I am delighted to be here and I want to draw your attention today to 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 through 13. I don't think a sermon has to be eternal to be everlasting. And so I'm going to tell you, like Liz Taylor told her fifth husband, I won't keep you long. We'll be in and through. First John chapter four, beginning at verse seven. This is how the Bible reads. It says, beloved, let us love one another 
For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. I know you don't know her. You've never heard of her. But I want to borrow from her musicology and tag this text. What's love got to do with it? Small singer from the 20th century, Tina Turner, had a song. What's love got to do with it? And as it relates to the Christian fellowship, I'd like to preach from that thought this morning. Will you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Father God in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for Jesus Christ. I thank you because it is in him that we have hope. It is in him that life has meaning and purpose. And I pray by your power divine that you'll use me to preach the truth of your word for your glory. And then, Lord God, I pray that if there is someone among us who does not know you in the pardon of their sin, that they'll come to know you and love you before it's too late as a result of this preached word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John's argument is clear. Lovelessness is godlessness. Many in our world have sought to define and describe love in varying ways. I know I have. When I was a sophomore at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, pursuing the prettiest woman I had ever met, trying to convince her of a wonderful future to a young poor kid, from the south side of Chicago, I knew that I could not just run up on her and say, I love you with all of my blood pump. I wanted to have a bit more swag, uh, a tad bit of finesse. And so I did what any reasonable person would do. I took a Shakespeare course. And that semester, as we studied through the sonnets of Shakespeare, I waited until I found the perfect one. And indeed, I did. I waited for that moment where I could catch her to convey the meaning of my uh, profound affection for her as we walked down Dorner Avenue between Pennsylvania and Nevada streets. It was almost that melancholy time of day when darkness has just about superseded the light. I waited until I could catch the sparkle in her eye and I grabbed her hand and said these words, love is not that which alters when alteration it finds. Neither does it bend to remove with the remover, but it is an ever fixed mark, which looketh upon tempest and remains unchanged. You ask me, did it work? <laughs> Eleven years later, two beautiful children. Here we are 
because God blessed me to communicate my love for her. But the reality is, friend, that the truest definition of love cannot be found in Shakespeare's liturgy. It cannot be found in Beyonce's music or in Kanye's disillusionment. The clearest, truest definition of love is found in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 13, where he says to us that love is the personification and the accomplishment of God's grace in the face of our human indifference. In our text, John pens the clearest definition of love anywhere. And in so doing, he urges upon us that love is not so much just rather for our utility as it is our identity. So potent is John's translation of love in human language that in its description is both our identification as children of God. And the verification of our current relationship with God. The articulation of love, of our love for God, John argues, is not found in the superlatives of our spoken sentiments. Neither is it found in how hard we go at it in worship. But the articulation of our love for God is found in the expression of our actions toward one another. To claim that we know God. It's the evidence that we are in relationship with him by manifesting his invisible presence in our everyday treatment of one another. I'll say it again. John's argument is clear. Lovelessness is godlessness. When we come to first John chapter four, verses seven through 13, this passage is neatly outlined by twin affirming designations. That way he refers to his original recipients, beloved. And after that, he levels what looks like twin admonitions, but they are distinguished by differing motives. He tells us that we ought to love one another, first of all, because love communicates the very character of God. And then he tells us that we ought to love one another because love confirms the residence of God in our lives. And anybody who reads John's epistle, even a cursory reading of John's first epistle can tell that John is consumed with this idea of godly love. He uses the stem in the original language of love more than 30 times in this short epistle. It's as if every time he dips the pen into the ink, it is dripping the language of love. Because love for John is more than a constructed idea. It is a conviction that love is a controlling and redemptive force. So he says, we ought to love one another. Because when we do that, we communicate the very character of God. Now anybody who studies the scripture, teaches or preaches it, should be able to situate the passage that they preach or teach within the larger context of the literary argument. And here it is, it seems to me, Upon first reading that verse 7 is an abrupt shift of the argument that John is making. When he begins the passage at verse 1, he is arguing for our ability to discern spiritually fake people from those who are actually legitimate Christians. 
And he says that you can discern the fake from the real by this litmus test. Watch the consistency and potency of their love. He does not tell us to watch how quickly they can parse Hebrew and Greek verbs. He does not tell us watch how they can solve theological riddles or help you to understand what the Bible is saying. But he says if you want to find a real Christian, watch the consistency and the potency of their love. Here's the pastoral wisdom with John immediately after warning the church to be on alert against deceiving spirits. He knows he has to encourage them to love one another nonetheless, because you and I can get so caught up in discerning one another's actions that we fail to treat one another in the way we should. And so he tells us to love one another. But I appreciate John because rather than leaving the definition of love up to us, he gives us a clear exposition of what love really is. And you can boil it down to the words in this verse. Verse 8, God is love. What a mouthful. He does not say love is God, but he says God is love in other words love is so selfless it is so redemptive it is so powerful that when we trace the trail of love and follow it to its roots when we get to the point of origination we will be standing in the very presence of God and here here John says is how we communicate to a world that does not see the invisible God, what he's actually like. In the most intimate and pastoral language, John literally writes these words, Dear loved ones, let us love one another. I wish you heard what I just said. He said, Dear loved ones, let us love one another. He does not say, Dear hurt ones. Let us hurt one another or, or dear pained ones, let us be a pain to one another. But he says, dear loved ones, let us love one another. It is as if to say those who have been loved by God ought to of necessity extend that same love to others that the very nature of God ought to determine the character of his people. And the logical inference is to say, well, why, John? Why do I have to love people I don't even like? Why do I have to love people who are difficult to love? John says it's simple because love comes from God. This is what scholars call a genitive of source. In other words, watch this now. This isn't popular and you might not like me after I say it, but I need to say it. God is the owner, possessor and distributor of love that if you get it, it can come to you in no other way. Real love has to come from God. And so no depraved or carnal definition for love for which humanity is infamous is sufficient to describe God's care for us. Heaven owns the copyright of the language of love and it does not invite our infringement. 
God gets to say what love is. God gets to show us how love works. And in this way, John immediately associates the benefactor of love with the practitioner of love. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Is that in your Bible? This, this, friends, if you want to know, is the evidence that some of us are of God and others of us are not from God. Those who are born of God share this attribute from God and with God. And in one sense, John seems to suggest to us that you can know, you can have epistemological certainty that God is your father and you are his child when you love one another. And this is comfortable to me, it's comforting rather to me because, because there are ways in which, in times of life in which, you run into things and you need to know that God is with you, that you belong to him and he is your father. This is what scholars call a communicable attribute of God. In other words, God is so totally different from you and I that there are many things about him that we can't relate to. We don't share with him. You know, <laughs> God is omniscient. You think you are. From time to time, I wonder if I were able to take a listing, a poll of your friends, your relatives and say in private. Now, really, does she think she know everything? And go, Child, let me tell you, you can't get a word out. Every time you say something, she telling you what she know. We, we like to think we know everything. But have you ever run upon something in life and you realize you didn't know as much as you thought you knew? In so many ways, we cannot be like God. God is omnipresent. We are fascinated with ubiquity, but we cannot be. I've tried in more than one place at one time. God is omnibenevolent. But I identify more with Paul. When I try to do right, evil is Always present. I wake up in the morning determined to do good. But before I lay down, I got to repent for something I didn't even know I was going to do. But friends, in the many ways in which you and I cannot be like God, here is one way in which we are like God. God is loving and everyone that comes from him bears that birthmark. We are to be loving as well. It's the kind of birthmark of the believer. It shows the world that we belong to him. Now, I know a little bit of something about this. I have, I have, no offense, Corey, Brian, I have the prettiest woman in the whole wide world. I wish you could see her. She, she's fine as frog hair. She is the sugar in my Kool-Aid and the fire in my fireplace. I'm getting on a plane this afternoon. I just sexed her before I came up here to take the mic. I said, look, the activator in my jerry curl, I'll be there in just a few hours. And I'm so grateful because I did what Waybright calls marrying up. I recommend it, guys. You, you see somebody who, who has not only the best beauty, but the better brains. And I looked at her and I said, oh yeah, this, this is the future. And I worked and I worked in long walks and meaningless talks and money that I did not have spent 
on food that I could not afford. But I got her. I got her. And I remember she was pregnant with our son, Charlie. I wish I had a picture to show you. I remember she was pregnant. I knew it was a boy. She did not. The Lord revealed some things to us that he doesn't tell everybody else. And the ultrasound technician confirmed what the Lord had told me. But I kept it to myself. I knew it was a boy. And we would pray every night good godly prayers for our child. Lord, please raise up godly friends for this child so that they can walk with you. Please allow this child to have a heart sensitive to you and to other people. Give this child a sense of soaring intellect so that they can be a meaningful contributor to society. But every night, every night that we prayed for this baby and I had my hand on my wife's womb, every night we prayed for this, I would pray something carnal if I can confess. Y'all won't judge me, will you? You just like me. I prayed something real carnal. I prayed, Lord, (laughs) please let this boy look like his mama. True story. I prayed it every night. I I asked the Lord because I wanted him to have a good prom date. I wanted him to be able to marry somebody who looked good. And I knew since I had married up, he needed to look more like his mama than he did like me. And when they pulled him out, I wept at his birth, not only because he was mine, but because he was so good looking. And I looked at my wife and I said, dear, you won't believe it. God answered our prayers. This boy looks like you. But if, but if I'm honest, as the months and the years went by, he started to look so much like her. See, every father wants his child to resemble him in some way, to share attributes with him in some way. He looked so much like her that I secretly wondered. I can't even believe I'm telling y'all this. I secretly wondered if we had gone too far with the prayer. So, so what am I to do? I know he's mine, but I want him to kind of look like me. Then it happened. One evening, about a year and a half ago, he slid into our bed between us, as is his custom, in the middle of the night. We just scoot over and make room for him. And we kept on sleeping early that morning. Kiersey got up before we did, son, rise early, peering through the bedroom window, and she saw something. She pulled out her phone and she took a picture as he was laying next to me, his left hand underneath the cool side of the pillow, his right hand on top of his head, head tilted slightly, mouth open, a little bit of drool coming down the side, laying on his tummy. She snapped the picture, texted to me with a smiling face. And when I woke up in the morning, the first message I received was a picture of the boy and I sleeping next to each other in the same position. I never told him this is how you get comfortable. I never suggested to him this is how you grab the pillow. I never said to him, open your mouth this way and you'll get all the air that you need. But there is something in his DNA that shows him this is the way you ought to get comfortable. I didn't have to teach it to him because my blood runs through his veins. You might look at him and say he looks like his mama. But when you watch him sleep, you got to say he sleeps like his daddy. He walks like his daddy. He talks like his daddy. Listen, friends, when the world looks upon the church fellowship and how we engage one another, they will not look at us and say they are God, but they will look at us and say they must come from him because of the way that we love one another. Is there anybody in this church who wants to look like 
their father in heaven. Is there anybody in this church who wants to feel the love of God moving through your heart and reaching other people? This is how it works. John urges upon us how God enacted love. In verse 9, he says, by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. It's too much to preach. Let me just dance across it. If I may in this was the love of God manifested that word manifested in the original language literally means to put on clear display that which was previously unknown. In other words, though the prophets had come and the ears of men had heard the word of God, they had not fully comprehended the love of God in their lives. And what God did is he took what was concealed and in the incarnation, he revealed himself to us. He, he, he had said to us, I've communicated my love, but you hadn't heard it in language you understand. So he decided that he would come to us in a way that we could understand. I see why some of y'all ain't got it yet. Some of y'all have, some of you haven't because you didn't forgot that God sent other people before Jesus came. He sent Moses, but Moses lost a generation in the wilderness. He sent Joshua, but Joshua never fully conquered the promised land. He sent David, but David had a, a Bill Clinton in the Oval Office kind of philandering problem. And rather than the kingdom getting better, it actually got worse. He sent Jeremiah, and though Jeremiah uh, is a prolific prophet, Jeremiah was a crybaby. He, he regretted the day that he was born. He didn't even like the people he was preaching to. He, he wished that he had never been born. He, he sent Isaiah, and Isaiah has some of the cleanest, most prolific Hebrew that we can read. But Isaiah also uh, was a man of, how can we say it? unclean lips. Um, he, he had a, a proclivity probably toward profanity. And, and, and what shall we say about Hosea? Hosea couldn't get his wife to come to church or to act right. And it doesn't matter how God did what he did through men. It never fully got better. What shall we say about Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah? What shall we say about Malachi? Except for the fact that though God had sent them, the people never fully understood his love. So round about Matthew chapter one, God said, I didn't send everybody. I know to sent. forget it. I'll become a man myself. And he wrapped himself in the likeness of sinful humanity came down through 40 and two generations, lived a sinless life, died a guilt-free death so that you and I might have a right to the tree of life. And you ask, does God love you? I say to you, when you ask if God loves you, don't you look at your bank statement. When you wonder if God loves you, don't you measure the square footage of your home. If you wonder if God loves you, don't you look at your retirement account or even your spouse. But if you wonder if God loves you, walk in here and gaze upon that cross. Look at it for all it's worth and see that God gave everything he had. Oh, bless his name. Bless his name. I feel like preaching in here, but I don't want to scare y'all. Is that all right? I, I just thank God that I, that I got a savior who would give everything that heaven had.
so that I could recover everything my poor parents lost. I like the way Gardner Taylor says it. He says that in Jesus was the endowment of heaven spilled upon filthy earth. He said that if we had gone back to God after Jesus had come to us and asked God for something more, God would have pulled his pockets out like a pauper and say, I got nothing else to give you. God gave us everything in Jesus and in Jesus we have life. Listen, friends, Jesus is the manifest love of God. Jesus is the palpable affection of God for humanity. Jesus is the unambiguous expression of God's love not previously known. Jesus is the obvious exhibit that God cares about us. The incarnation is God talk in human language. It's the speech of heaven in human vocabulary. Jesus is the dialect of heaven in human prose. He is the clearest, realest, sincerest evidence that God loves us. Jesus is proof that God puts his money where his mouth is. He loves us. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave us his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and I. Listen, friends, I race through this to highlight in verse 10 that that love does not have you and I as its point of origin. We need to, as a church, debunk the anthropocentric notion of love. John says in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. To be the propitiation for our sins. You got to love that language. It's some language, Pastor Brian, that we don't need to be ashamed of to say in front of people. It's some language that the church needs to hold on to. Propitiation is one of those terms. Propitiation points back to that Old Testament system of sacrifice. Where the the priest would come, bring the animal, slay the animal on the altar, transfer the guilt of the people onto the animal. And as he would enact the sacrifice, the the burning of the animal would reach the nostrils of God that something innocent had given its life for someone guilty and it would appease the wrath of God, but only for a set period of time. It never did it full and finally, it just rolled it over one more year. And every year, the people would have to come and wait on the blood of bulls and goats and the aroma, that sweet smelling sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. It was a two tier system. It needed a priest and a sacrifice. But when you get to the New Testament, you no longer need a priest and a sacrifice. Because Jesus becomes both the priest and the sacrifice. In other words, what God demanded of us in the Old Testament, he supplied for us in the new. God is the supply of his own demand. God is able to tell you what you need. Step in, be what you need and make you right with himself. He is the propitiation for our sins. When we love one another in this way, We communicate to the world the very character of God. But I take my seat when I tell you that when we love in this way, we confirm the residence of God in our lives. Here is the second address in verse 11. Beloved, let us love one another. If God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Since God loves us, we also ought to love one another. In verse 7, John says we ought to love in response to the nature of God. In verse 11, John says we ought to love in response to God's love for us. In the first imperative, we love in a way that explains God's love. In the second imperative, we love in a way that evidences that God lives in us. And herein is the proof that God lives in us, that I love you and you love me. And you need this proof. You need this proof because according to verse 12, nobody has ever seen God with their eyes. You don't know how tall, dark and handsome he is. That's anthropomorphic language. To describe that God is amazing. You, you don't know what heaven looks like. Though you worship him on a regular basis, you've never beheld his beauty with your own eyes. You, you've never touched him with your own hands. But John will go on to say you do see the person you sit next to every week. You, you do touch the people you come into the sanctuary every week. So don't go mouthing off about how much you love God when you can't stand the person you sitting across the sanctuary from. We have never seen them, but just because we ain't never seen them doesn't mean we cannot know for sure that he exists. Oh, I know he's real, real. I wish I could say it the way I feel real. In my heart, I know he's real. I know he's real because there are times in which I sense the move of God to love people I would not normally love. And I know that's God. That's not me. It's like the boys who were flying kites at the boys leadership class in the parking lot at the church in the hood. They, they didn't really know how to fly kites. So the ministry leader, a few decades older than them, wanted to show them how to get kites up in the air. You should have saw the boys running the kites in the parking lot as the wind picked the kites up and went up way up in the air. So much so that as the kites went up and they were holding the spindle, they, they could not see the kites as they had gone so high. One little boy came late that Saturday morning and he ran over to the other boys and, and he said to one of them, what are, what are we doing? The boy said, we're flying kites. And the little boy who had just arrived looked up and he said, I don't see no kite. Twitched the boy holding the spindle, looked up, looked back down and said, I don't see one either. To which the boy who had just arrived said, well, how do you know there's a kite when you cannot see it? And the boy said, well, I guess every now and then I feel this string pull. And I know that what I cannot see is real because I can feel it. Friends, I wish somebody heard what I just said. You may not be able to put a GPS on God. You may not be able to explain all the movement of God, but you know he's real when you feel a moving in your heart. Is there anybody in this church that has ever felt that before? God moving in your heart. 
He's real. When we love one another, the intangible becomes touchable. The invisible becomes indwelling. And you say, so what? This, this is amazing, friends. John answers the so what question. He says, if we love one another, God is inside of us. And his love is perfected in us. And by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. He has put himself inside of us. And that's good news to somebody. Somebody we prayed for who's battling sickness. You, you might associate your value with your condition. But John says don't do that. Because when we love one another. We have the insignia of God inside of us. His spirit takes up residence. And that matters more than anything else in the world. I'm in my seat when I tell y'all this. I came to our church six years ago. At, in Chicago and when I got there it was a historic uh, black church in Chicago and, and all the advice I got was the same don't don't touch anything for a year don't change nothing is what they told me well I tried I did the best I could I barely made it we we did some renovations inside the church and we had this eight foot concert grand piano on the platform and and it was in the way uh, it really wasn't being used but we couldn't move it because people felt like Jesus had played that piano when he was a little boy, like he had taken lessons on it at the church. So I waited, Pastor Loretz, I waited until the middle of the week when nobody was around to move this piano. We, we moved it downstairs and I knew it didn't work, but I didn't just want to get rid of it. So we invited a few companies in to come take a look at it, to figure out what repairs it needed. One by one, they came in and looked at the piano. I remember uh, them looking underneath it, playing it and touching it. And, and, and the first company said, well, you know, no, this piano does need a lot of work, uh, but what we can do for you is this. Uh, we'll take this piano and we'll give you a brand new one. Well, after that happened about two or three times, I started to occur to me that they, they knew something I didn't know. And, and so... And, and so another company came in and they, this time, they not only offered us a new piano, they offered us a new piano with money on top to take this piano. And I said, oh no, mm-mm. Y'all not going to get me on this one. So we decided to call in the people who made the piano. We called the Steinway Company to the church. They, they came in, two sleek Caucasian sisters, headbands with little flashlights on the top. They started looking around, tinkering with the piano, and they said, oh, okay, it needs a new floorboard. They, they said a, a few of the keys need to be replaced. The whole thing needs to be stripped and varnished. We need to get it climate controlled and get you something to put over it that will preserve it. And, and then I said, well, how, how much <laughs> will that cost? And, and they said, oh, just a couple tens of thousands of dollars. And I said, well, no, thank you. I, I really appreciate y'all for coming, but we not going to do that. And, and the, the woman looked at me and said, sir, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, you don't understand. Other companies have come in here and offered us brand new pianos. But you want to charge us for this broke down, dilapidated, beat up piano to ship it all the way to the East Coast to get it in shape and make us pay for it. She said, well, what are they offering you? I said, well, just so happens I have some pictures right here. And I pulled out my iPad. I started showing her pictures, big, bright, shiny pianos, brown, gold, some that were electric. It was fantastic. And she said, no, no, stop, no. And I said, yes, yes, yes. She said, you don't get it. I said, what don't I get? She said, raise the hood on this piano. I lifted up the hood. She said, can you read me the name that's embossed in the frame? I said, Steinway. She said, stop right there. 
She said, sir, we only make five of these a year. She said, even in its condition, it's worth far more than the other ones they're offering you because of the name that's on the inside of it. I wish y'all heard what I said. I got to catch this flight. Bye bye now. May the Lord God bless you real good. But before I take my seat, let me tell y'all, you might have walked in here dilapidated, broke down, beat up in rough condition. But because there's a name on the inside of you and that name is better than Steinway. It's better than Hyundai. It's better than anything else. It's the name of the most high God. And because his name is on the inside of you, you can go farther. You can stand stronger. And you can know you belong to him. If you receive it this morning, praise God in this church.